The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Things, and that is why I will try to come somewhere into a sort of fantastic realism, into a sort of uh, spiritual rationalism, in which I will try to show you some amazing things from the standpoint of Tantric Yoga. I personally find Tantric Yoga the most qualified to deal with these aspects of energy, matter, consciousness, because actually Tantric Yoga emphasizes especially on this aspect of energy, which it, which it generically calls Shakti, the universal power. And uh, because of this the lore of knowledge, of practical knowledge, not just speculation, theory, but the actual lore of knowledge concerning energy and its role of buffering between the material and the spiritual is actually outstanding. And all in all, we are going to split today's presentation in two parts. In the first part, I am going to introduce some of the general ideas. I am going to give you some of the outlines, some of the facts, some of the points and some of the practical applications which show in which way spiritual sciences with hundreds of years ago, sometimes with thousands of years ago, have conceived of this link between spirit and matter in terms of the structure of energy. In the second part of this debate of this lecture, we are going to go much deeper, that will be a, sto a sort of trip, a sort of travel. I am going to make a short energization, exemplification of energy with you, trying to take you at a little bit of a deeper level of consciousness. In, I will use some of the formalism of modern science and rationalism to take you into a slightly different state of mind where you will have a slight demonstration of the way in which tantrics meditating upon the structure of space and time they have reached to the unified aspect of consciousness. And you are going to see that from their standpoint things make sense. Even if we are not able to give a Nobel Prize level positive science demonstration tonight in that respect, we are nevertheless being able to trace experimentally some of the steps of those who did this research. In this way, I will start by saying that the very title of tonight's lecture, Quantum Mechanics and uh, Physics and Spirituality, is actually a title which is a bit surpassed, which is a little bit old-fashioned, because quantum mechanics is not really the name which defines all those things from a scientific standpoint. It's a bit of an amateurish name, which tends to put together everything which is borderline science, advanced science, everything from nuclear physics to relativity theory, everything from holographic universe theories to parallel universes, everything from string theory to I don't know what other things, they are jammed together in a package which scientists always define by very specific names and which 
Outsiders call it quantum mechanics, relativity, advanced physics, cutting-edge science, borderline science, or something like that. I'm saying this because while quantum mechanics has definitely defined a great leap in understanding for mankind in the beginning of the 20th century and subsequently, the scientific theories and the scientific understanding has evolved immensely ever since, and that is why uh, you have to realize that quantum mechanics actually does not explain everything. This uh, error is perpetuated by the fact that uh, there appear periodically scientific creations under the forms of books and more recently movies, which are bringing to the general public elements from borderline science and which of course thrill the outsiders and sometimes are simply exploited for some uh, mystical understanding. In this way, you, all of you, if you are interested in alternative science, you know that in the 1970s there was a galaxy of books such as the Tao of Physics of Mr. Capra and uh, Space Time and Beyond by Bob Tobin and Fred Allen Wolf and other such books which continued and continued and recently, of course, we had What the Blip Do We Know and all the other things, the sequel to it, and others which were trying to tap this generous resource of uh, science cum spirituality, the blending of the two. That is why I would like to say from the very beginning, actually, the very physicists themselves, they demonstrated, or they have noticed at least, that the conclusions which you reach when you start zooming into the micro reality into the microcosm, into the elementary particle world and the conclusions at which you reach if you zoom out into the big universe, into the macrocosm, into the galaxies and stars are actually different. The conclusions reached by quantum mechanics uh, symbolized by one like Niels Bohr, for example, and the conclusions reached by Albert Einstein with his theory of relativity, they went diametrally opposite to each other, and it was very difficult to put them in a coherent whole. They made lots of attempts in those years with the Copenhagen model and all kinds of dialogue in science to reconcile the rift which appears between the two because if you zoom into quantum mechanics it tells you that the universe is built in a certain way and if you go into the galactic, astronomical, cosmogonic levels you find out that the universe is built in a completely different way and therefore it's like the two ends don't meet to make them ends meet the scientists have made lots of theories and experiments trying to postulate the existence of superluminic speeds such as speeds beyond the light speed in this physical universe. They have appeared theories like the one of the holographic universe and holographic reality. They have tried to justify the fact that the universe is a structure of parallel universes which, funny enough, is exactly what spirituality also says, at least in the Eastern metaphysics and in yoga as I'm going to show in a minute when I'm going more concretely into things, then they have tried to develop other theories such as the modern string theories and others even newer than that. And in this way what I am trying to say is that quantum mechanics is not an appropriate name, it's just a symbolic name. What we wanted to say by the title of this lecture is what does borderline science 
the new frontier science of the 20th and even 21st century, what does it have in common with the statements of the old metaphysical doctrines that were dealing with the structure of energy, matter, universe and its relationship with consciousness. Now, this being said, I would like to underline a few facts. Let's go into some of the statements and see how they fit. And uh, what is most important for us in yoga is actually to analyze the way in which they fit with practice. Because in yoga, you are going to find out that we are eminently practical people. We always look for the hands-on kinds of uh, solutions. We are not interested in a theoretical knowledge only. Theoretical knowledge is good to explain something, but if it doesn't contribute to anything practically, it's a sterile knowledge. That is why it is not enough to know that transmutation of chemical elements is possible from one to another through nuclear reactions. The question is, can you do it? If you can do it, then you know. But if you cannot do it, then it's just a speculative knowledge. That is why using the resources of quantum mechanics and uh, the wormhole theories and others, we can explain lots of things from anti-gravitation to telepathy and from psychokinetic effects to other such paranormal elements. The question is how much of those can be applied in practice? How many of those have actually been applied in practice? The first thing which shocks when we look at the old metaphysical theories is this statement that everything is energy. For the ancient yogis, for example, especially in this tantric yoga, and I have tried last evening to explain what is tantric yoga, because for many people the word tantra symbolizes a lot of collateral things, out of which uh, not the least would be its connection with sexuality or at least some sort of sacred sexuality. The concept of Tantra Yoga has nothing directly to do with sexuality because it's a much, much broader concept which illustrates a certain outlook of reality of the world. The Tantric Yogis of India and Tibet were those who were having a positive attitude to the world and reality because they considered that this world in which we live, every atom of this reality, our bodies and everything manifested, are actually able to reveal spiritual truths. And therefore their attitude was not to run away from this reality, trying to lock yourself into a cave and mortify yourself to destroy the flesh in favor of the spirit, but to make the flesh and spirit cooperate, dance in a harmonious way. Therefore, they state, and this is a very, very important thing you will see at how many levels it works, they have stated that everything, all the reality which surrounds us, all manifestation, and they understand so many things through this, you will be surprised, just a moment till we get there, everything is made of energy. We are just dealing with various kinds of energy, and various kinds of energy are characterized by various characteristics, such as various frequencies of vibrations and others. A general image used in yoga, in the yogic metaphysics, 
presents the universe, and this is an image which we teach in the very first day of yoga to our uh, junior pupils, it's kind of elementary skeleton knowledge, is that we consider practically, and this applies in practice, we consider the universe as an ensemble of several families of energies. I would like to make a parenthesis here to tell you something. People will say, well, all these things sound very beautifully and you will see that they make sense practically and they demonstrate a lot of things beautifully, but at the same time some of you can say, how is there any actual demonstration that things go that way? In Chinese traditional medicine, when modern people learn about acupuncture, they are taught that according to Chinese traditional medicine, the body is run by, a, and by an ensemble of five energies, which are called the five elements, such as earth, water, fire, and the energy of those five elements runs through the meridians of our system of energy, and it creates, it conditions our state of health. And any modern pupil would ask, what are these five elements? What is this energy running through meridians? And to the more skeptic of the students, the teachers in traditional Chinese medicine tell them, you have to think as if these things were true, in the meaning that we can't demonstrate them scientifically, but if you think as if they were true, you are going to get the result. And when you will plant a needle, it will have the actual healing effect. Therefore, it's like, even if you cannot demonstrate it, maybe the truth is in another way, but this shell, this interface, this user interface, that we have been told that there are five elements, and the energy of the five elements move through the meridians, and there exist a thousand and I don't know how many points, and twelve basic meridians, and all the rest, it works as if it were so. If things under the first layer actually look different, we don't know. But we know the interface. On the interface, we know that it works as if it was so. It's the same with yoga. You may say, maybe from a scientific standpoint, we are going to demonstrate that there are not just seven families of energies in the universe, but actually that there are eleven. Maybe. We don't know what's under the first layer. We know that from the standpoint of the utilizer, which are we, the human beings, from the user standpoint, it works as if there were seven levels of energy and seven basic centers of energy and so on. Therefore, this is a kind of convenient interface for the user and for utilitarian purposes it works just like that. In a strictly academic, scientific standpoint, men maybe further theoretical, metaphysical elucidations can be given, but from the standpoint of the yogis, they would be impractical. Why would you study theory when actually you have a proper interface and you can work on it and get the results? Therefore, here is how it starts. We define, and that's a classical image, we define reality as a sandwich, as a parallel universe structure made of seven layers of energy. These layers of energy are translated as if they were the 
range is a frequency of a radio. Exactly as in a radio you would have long waves, medium waves, short waves one, short waves two, FM channels, television frequencies, microwave and satellite channels. The higher you go, the higher the frequency, which makes that down here the energies are slow, heavy if you prefer, dense, and the higher you go, the more accelerated the energies become, the more fast, the more uh, light they become, the more rapid. And this structure is, of course, for some people strictly conventional, like why seven and not divide these things in ten or in twelve. It has been proven practically that it works best this way. The explanations will show immediately where I am going. And therefore, according to the yogic understanding, the human being, which is a structure made of all of these, in us we have both things belonging to this, and to this, and to this, and to all the seven levels, this makes the human being a very complex structure of energy, in which we have heavy energy, light energy, gross structures, subtle structures interacting with each other constantly. When we say that everything is energy, going from the lowest level till the higher level, this automatically has some practical applications, because yes, everybody can say, oh, I understand, everything is energy, beautiful, but what does it mean in practice? I'm going to share with you some of the points of view, which will already give you some practical hints about the way we think about these things and the way we work with these things in Tantric Yoga. For example, let's have applications on the first levels which are more easy to understand. The very first level of existence of all these energies are called in the metaphysical systems which translated these into Western language, the physical body, the physical world, the physical reality, by this understanding everything which is strictly material, substantial, the solid state of matter and the things, of course, the physical matter as such. This automatically says that in a human being, this refers to what we call, what has been called in theosophical schools, for example, the physical body. How does this story with energy apply? For example, the Ayurvedic medicine, the Ayurvedic medical system of India, considers that we are what we are physically because of dominating or predominant energies in our system. That means the system, the body system of a human being is constituted according to traditional medicine out of the four basic energies, Chinese system as well, the four elements which are called in normal metaphysics earth, water, fire and air. These earth, water, fire and air are found in astrology as well where people are born in earth, water, fire or air. Astrological signs, they are the same with the Chinese traditional medicine and these energies even correspond to the four classical temperaments from normal psychology, from classical psychology where people are classified as being uh, melancholic, phlegmatic, choleric and sanguine according to the dominance of those elements. The yogic science as well as Ayurvedic medicine says that the structure of your body 
entirely depends on what element is predominant. For example, let's give the two extremes so you understand immediately the diversity, the range. If in your being you are having lots of earth elements, the lowest of them, the most dense, then automatically some of the following qualities will follow. One, your bones are going to be heavy, thick and very resistant and almost never breaking except in very hard accidents. Your flesh is going to be very dense, you are never going to have puffy tissues, but your, the flesh is going to be thick and dense, so your body is the hard type of body. Your skin is thicker than average, and your skin is hard, and it wrinkles with great difficulty, so the people who have lots of earth element, they don't get wrinkles even when they are old, while others get wrinkles even at the age of 25. If you are dominated by the earth element, you tend to put on weight very easily and you are the heavy type of person, buffalo, elephant type of person. If you are having lots of earth energy, your hair is thick and very resistant and it almost never falls off. Earth people generally don't go bald, for example, especially in the case of men. Of course, for women it's more a matter of thickness of the hair. If you are having lots of earth in your system, your nails are thick and lustrous and they never crack or go dry. If you are having lots of earth in your system, you are generally a person whose brain works slowly but thoroughly. You are a person who even temperamentally is patient, slow. You are a person who loves things which are oily, fatty. And I could continue with this characteristic lots and lots. You like to sleep more than eight hours every night. You are a heavy sleeper type of person and so on and so on. All these things are very, very clear for them. If on the contrary, you have a predominance of the air element, which is the lightest of them, the earth being the heaviest, then air element manifested in your structure says the following. You are lightweight type of person. You have very fast movements, like a bird, because birds have lots of air energy in their structure, according to the understanding of these students of nature. Then, if you are having lots of air element, your bones are light but frail. You are the petite type of person, generally, or if not, you are skinny and very long, long arms, long, long legs, but very thin, very skinny. If you are having air element, you are fast, you learn quickly, you forget quickly, you get irritated quickly, you get calmed down very quickly. If you are an air element type of person, your skin is dry, your hair goes grizzled very easily. If you are an air type of person, you lose hair easily, your nails can get dry and brittle. If you are an air type of person, you can get wrinkles very early in life because your skin is thin and your fleshy tissues tend to be if you are an air type of person, you most likely suffer of insomnia and you cannot sleep more than four or five hours per night and the things could go on and on and on. Therefore, I gave you these examples to show that if somebody is coming and saying, well, I'm having problems with my skin, my friend is having a very, very velvety skin and I'm having this kind of orange peel type of skin. The Ayurvedic medicine together with yoga says it's a matter of what energy your body streams through 
channels through. You are born because of the DNA from your parents, because of the astrological sign under which you are born, because of the karma from your previous lives or whatever reason you want to bring to it. You are born with a certain pre-setting and you are born in a certain way, earthy, watery, fiery or airy. That reflects in the quality of your body. And generally, if you don't make effort, the quality of your body remains the same throughout a lifetime. Through diet, through all kinds of other concerns, you can produce some changes. Therefore, here we have practical applications. If, for example, a postmenopausal woman is coming and reporting osteoporosis, Osteoporosis is nothing else but diminishing of the earth element because in the moment when your bones start losing the bone tissue and your bones have start having pores, which is osteoporosis, pores in your bones, in that moment it means that the earth element diminishes, which is the rigidity of the bone, the strength of the bone, and the air element is increasing, which is like bubbles of air in your bones pores, like if you get an Emmentaler cheese in your bones, structure-like, and therefore, according to the Ayurvedic medicine and according to yoga, a woman suffering from osteoporosis, and a man as well, but I, I'm quoting a typical medical problem, a person suffering from osteoporosis is suffering from lack of earth and too much air, and therefore, both Ayurveda and yoga they say you should diminish the air and increase the earth. How can you do that? Well, you can do that by diet. You can do that by yogic exercises which bring earth energy in your system. You can do that through all kinds of collateral means. Therefore, we demonstrate, and this is something which works in practice exceedingly well, because you can say, well, that's just speculation. No, it isn't. We have seen examples of persons having loss of bone tissue who did yoga for one year and then when they went to test themselves, the bone tissue regenerated to a large extent and the loss of bone tissue stopped completely. And therefore it actually does work in practice, although it does not have a full Western scientific explanation. Therefore the first thing to remember is the very structure of your body the softness of your skin, the strength of your bones, and a million other things, depends on energy. Some people are born with a certain type of energy, and 24-7 they stream that energy through their structure, and they present certain qualities. Yoga says it is possible to duplicate those qualities, it is possible to avoid some things if you work with the proper energy. If you have an interest to do that, you can actually even modify extremely important things in your body by working with energy. The energy influences the quality of your tissues. The second level, the second manifestation, because the first we said is the physical body the physical reality, and this is the one which we deal mostly with, because this one we see. But beyond this, the human being, according to traditional yoga, is surrounded by a body of energy, by a body of chi, as the Chinese call it, in India we call it prana. So this body of energy, of life force, which surrounds the body, is actually our vital 
field of energy. This field of energy is coordinating our physiological functions. For example, some people have a lot of fire in their system. There are people who even when it's cold outside, they go out in a t-shirt and they never seem to suffer from cold. While some people, as soon as there is a bit of a chill, their hands are getting cold, their feet are getting cold, they suffer from lack of fire. This is also, according to the Chinese medicine and according to Ayurveda and yoga, it is also a matter of energy. There are people whose digestive fire is powerful and those people feel that they can eat glass, they can eat iron, they can eat anything. They would digest like they have a fire inside which burns everything. And there are people who consider that their body is having a slow digestion, like your fire is smoldering inside and not manages to consume everything properly. And therefore what I am saying here is this, our physiological functions, according to the yogic understanding, are also coordinated by energies. You just accumulate a certain energy and you notice that your whole physiology changes. Your body works in another way. Now it starts getting interesting. Until here, the first two bodies, even materialistic scientists, would make a compromise and accept this union of flesh with energy, with prana. When we go higher, it gets even more interesting. The third structure of energy, the third structure of the human being, is called in theosophical westernized mysticism literature the astral body or the subtle body, and it is supposed to be a structure of rarefied energy surrounding the human being, which is generically called by most mystics of today aura, although I am sad to say that many New Age mystics make a salad of, out of all of these things, and they mix all kinds of fields of energy, like in a, it's one and the same thing. No, there exists an aura of energy, number two, the pranic body, the life force body, which deals with the functioning of your organs, vitality, physiology, and there is another field of energy which is structurally superior, which deals with higher functions and which doesn't have much to do with physiology or with health issues. This third body or this third structure of energy of the human being, called astral body as I said, is considered traditionally in yoga to be a sort of emotional body. It is called in Sanskrit Manomaya Kosha from the Sanskrit root mana which refers to the lower mind. And therefore, you will be surprised to hear that in yoga we consider that the human emotions are also a matter of a certain energy. For example, there are people who are permanently depressive. Depression is the disease of the 20th century, of the 21st century surely. There are people who are always quarrelsome. There are people who are always aggressive. There are people who are always this or that. Why? Yoga says, because without knowing why, they receive certain energies in their system all the time. For example, if you have a friend who is a quarrelsome person, 
and you say, I don't know what's the matter with this guy. He quarrels all the time. He loves to quarrel. If you go to him and you catch him in one of his moods, he just jumps at your throat to bite, you know. He likes to be aggressive. If he has had nobody to quarrel with today, he goes and quarrels with the cashier lady in the supermarket or something. He needs to quarrel. It's like he's having a bladder full of aggression and he needs to burst it open from time to time. He, if he would be alone in the forest, he would probably start beating up a tree with a stick or something, but he still needs to manifest in fiery, aggressive ways. <clears throat> this shows that our friend is actually accumulating an energy which is overwhelming, which is too much in his structure. He cannot get rid of it and he is conditioned by that energy. For example, aggression, violence, quarrelsome temperament and others are produced by a certain energy pouring through your system and if you don't know how to get rid of it or how to transform it, it's right there. It's exactly like somebody is throwing garbage in your yard. If you can't get rid of it or if you can't stop this, it's going to pile up until it's going to poison you. Therefore, remember that in yoga we consider that dealing with emotions is actually very simple. And any one of you who will come into an actual yoga school where people do it seriously and profoundly, you are going to be surprised by seeing that most of the advanced yogis are very good at switching their emotions any way they want. It's like you are not the victim of your emotions. I woke up this morning in bed and oh, I felt like I was going to die. I don't want to wake up. You can do something. You can switch a button and stop it. You don't need to be depressed. Depression can be stopped. It's an emotion and being an emotion it shows that a certain kind of energy is stagnating, accumulating somewhere in your system, in your aura. And as soon as you press the button, you can flush it and you, get, you can get rid of it. And then depression disappears as by miracle. People studying these kinds of things, they discover that there is nothing sacred about emotions. Emotions, as simple hypnotic experiments demonstrate, and so many others, I hope you have seen Darren Brown or Paul McKenna or stage hypnotizers, hypnotists, you have, they demonstrate that it is possible to create and stop any emotion at will just like this. In a fraction of a second a person can go from depression to sexual excitement, from sexual excitement to sense of humor, from sense of humor to absurdity, and so on. The, the emotional state can change just like that. Therefore, this is very important because the emotional economy is one of the big, big problems of the 21st century of the modern world. I can see more and more clearly, especially it applies to the younger generations, that one of the things is that people cannot control their emotions. If you are angry, you just get angry, but nobody thinks, hey, I could control my anger. If I, you are depressed, you could actually switch your depression or use it in a constructive way, at least, or something. No, I am a complete victim. I cannot do anything about it. It's like I'm trying to do a project such as I start medical school to become a doctor and then suddenly I get discouraged and then I quit. Wait a second. Many people got discouraged in the history of mankind and they continued. They controlled their emotions. You don't get controlled by your emotions because that's not what the human condition is defined to be. 
And therefore, this is very important in modern times. And in yoga, we are having a very rational way in tantric yoga because we are actually showing you how to work with emotions. You can simply do some yoga exercises and your emotions are changing just like this, dramatically, radically. And then you start understanding that Gurdjieff, a great initiate from the last century, was very right when he said that the human being is more like a robot, that people act mechanically, that there are a lot of mechanical things in the human being, and if you press the right button, you can obtain a surprising effect. Therefore, remember that people's emotions are depending on a certain type of energy. If any one of you is dominated by a certain emotion, ask yourselves what kind of energy keeps streaming through your system day and night, producing that emotion. Some of you can be depressive, some of you can be sickly ambitious, just to give two opposite Directions. Therefore, remember that energy can deal with that problem. It's an energy problem, after all. If we go even deeper, it gets even more interesting. The fourth level of the human being, according to yoga, is what the theosophists have called the mental body. Mental body refers to that part of the human being which is referring to abstract judgment, intellect. Not just the sensations, the sensory interpretation, and the, the, so not only the sensations and the emotions, but the abstract intellect. When you work with concepts, with ideas, when you do logic, reasoning, synthesis, analysis, when you are doing philosophy, mathematics, conceptualization, when you are working with trends, ideas and concepts, that is when you use the fourth body you will immediately recognize that for some people the fourth body is hyper-developed, like for the great intellectuals, for the great philosophers, for the great thinkers, and for some people the mental body is not very developed. There are people who don't have a great intellectual capacity. For them it's more the emotional that is their domain. Here it's again energy. This level is also made of energy, albeit a more refined energy. It's a super exquisite energy. It's a high frequency energy. And that energy determines the quality of our minds. Did you ask yourselves why some people are pessimistic and some people are optimistic? Why some people are all the time creative and some people never seem to get any idea, even bad ones sometimes they don't get why some people are having this uh, capacity and for some people it seems to be switched off the yogis say it's all a matter of energy again if a certain energy is flowing through your system then you suddenly find yourself that your psychology is the psychology of an optimist and if another energy like the yin and yang of it, if another energy is flowing through your system, you are always the pessimist. And you just shrug your shoulders and say, what to do? I have been a pessimistic person ever since I was a child. That can change. It can change in six months. If, if you do efforts, systematic efforts, every day, you can change your psychology. You can start having creative ideas. You can do amazing things with your mind if you start using the proper energies that feed your mind. And therefore, for the yogis, even the mind is a matter of energy. The yogis would ask themselves, 
a genius, a person who can speak 17 foreign languages, a person who can play chess with 250 people and win all those matches simultaneously, a person who is a genius in science or in art, or what kind of energy do they have? This is interesting to find out what kind of energy produces what kind of effect and then to try to find out if we can duplicate that effect. Therefore, for the yogis, even the mind is energy and we work here with meditation, with visualization, with all kinds of conceptual techniques and we can influence the way the mind works. We can transform our minds. And if we go even deeper, you know what some great thinkers said and justly said, that if you have a certain way of thinking, then you define a character or a destiny. That is exactly where we go. The fifth body or the fifth level of the human being is traditionally considered to be a level which contains the causes of events. It is called by the Theosophics, it has been called hundred and some years ago, the causal body as the body of causes. According to elementary metaphysics, every effect is coming from a cause. Every event in your life, that you are healthy or not so healthy, that you won the lotto or somebody stole a sum of money from your pocket, that you fell down and broke your leg or that you are stone healthy, and any event in your life, sudden or not, is an effect. But that effect must have a cause. Nothing happens randomly, just as even Albert Einstein said, God is not throwing dice. And therefore, the idea is that everything is cause and effect. This law of cause and effect is one of the great pillars of Asian, of Eastern mysticism. It is most often known under the name of karma. Karma is the law of causality, which goes from cause to effect. And therefore, the yogis coming down to earth into practical things, they say, if that is also a level of energy, then it means that the presence of certain energies, it is true, we are speaking about some extremely, extremely, extremely subtle energies, but the presence or the absence of some of those extremely refined energies in your system can mean a different destiny, which means there are energies which can make you win the lotto, and there are energies which can make you have bad luck all the time. There are energies which can make you get into trouble physically and not. You can make this experiment. If any one of you meets after 30 years from the end of the high school after your prom, you should just, if you have the possibility, get and get at least two or three of those people naked and look at the body. And you are going to discover one person has 35 scars over their body, has been subjected to major surgery five times, has had their legs broken three times, has had I don't know what, and is full of scars, burns and marks, and the other person is immaculate, doesn't have anything on their body. It's like this person is like a magnet for wounds, surgery, burns, fractures and things, while the other person doesn't have at all. This is because actually indeed there are some energies which define our destiny. Some people are prone to mechanical accidents, some people never have a mechanical accident ever during their lives. 
some people. Have you seen the story? Do you know the story about five children that are playing a prank and one of them gets caught and pays for all of them? Have you seen that there are children who are always getting caught and they are the ones who get in trouble all the time? Do you know the story that in an office there is a person who works and that person is the underdog and when the boss gets pissed off he always comes and discharges his nerves on that person. That person is like the lightning rod for the anger of the boss. And it's like that person attractive, is a magnet for other people's nerves, irritation, things and this, while other people never get it, because if they would get it, they would explode themselves immediately, and nobody would dare to make a scandal to that person, but everybody dares to make scandal to that person. It's like some persons ask for it. This, according to the understanding of yoga, these are some basic energies which govern events in our lives. That is why the yogis consider that it is possible not only to change the body, not only to change the physiology, not only to change your emotions, not only to change your mind and mentality, but even to change your destiny, to change the, the event in your life by changing the predominant energies which you accumulate unconsciously and passively, usually from the universe. That is why in yoga this theory that everything is energy is a reality. We use it every day. We work upon it. It's not just a speculation. It has been known for hundreds of years, for thousands of years, and it is being used in an amazing way. There are amazing details. There is a lot of practicality about those kinds of things. Then we are having other elements, and I will try to keep it short. There are other elements which fit before I'm going to the big demonstration of tonight, which I'll make after a short break, about the way the tantrics have seen, and I will be able to take you there a little bit, to give you a glimpse of this unusual level of existence, of this insight. Uh, before we get there, I said, you should know that there are other elements which, again, demonstrate or show this connection between matter and spirit via this link, this important link, which is energy. Not only the things which I have demonstrated there, but others as well. Another very important one is, for example, the connection between the material and the spiritual. As I have uh, shown last night, that's a symbolic drawing that we always make, the nature of reality is not only the universe with its various levels of energy, but also something which is beyond the universe, a mysterious, the cloud of unknowing, as it was called by some Christian mystic, which is somehow tangent to reality. The two faces of reality, the two aspects of reality being non-manifestation and manifestation the nominal world and the phenomenal world, the void and the full, the nirvana and the samsara, the brahman and the maya, the purusha and the prakriti, the spirit and the matter, the transcendent and the immanent, and the list can continue in the tantric tradition, the Shiva aspect and the Shakti aspect and so on and so forth. The, one of the biggest problems, and here we are almost like in Jonathan Swift the travels of Gulliver, because uh, there he was making fun 
by having some allusion to the divisions between the Catholic Church and the Protestant or the Catholic Church and the Anglican and others in his century. He was making fun that some people, there were two parties in the country of Lilliput and some of them were breaking the egg to the broad end and some of them were breaking the boiled eggs to the narrow end and this made them be like two parties like the Republicans and Democrats of USA or something basically doing the same thing but pretending to be at the two different ends of the egg and uh, what am I trying to say through this? I'm trying to say that funny enough sometimes small philosophical differences they lead to very, very big attitudes down here in the concrete life. And what am I saying through this? I'm saying the fact that one of the biggest philosophical problems which defines a lot of differences in spiritual and religious life is precisely the interaction between those two. How do those two aspects the yin and the yang of the universe, the two halves of reality, the purusha and prakriti, the spirit and matter, how do they dance with each other? Do they dance? Do they interact like in the yin-yang symbol of the Taoist? Or are they separate from each other? In some spiritualities, we are led to believe that there is no contact, that the two are completely separate. And it can sound to you as a very abstract philosophical exercise. Like this guy is talking now about philosophy. If spirit and matter actually interact with each other or are like two different categories that never touch each other. This is very, very important because it gives rise to a different attitude towards life. For example, in the situations where in the conditions, in the circumstances, in the environment where spirit and matter are considered completely separate, there appears automatically a kind of contempt or rejection of the material. Most religions that do that, they develop aesthetic, punitive, mortifying, negative forms of life because it's like you cannot do anything material which will influence something spiritual. It doesn't matter what you eat or what you do and how you sleep and that and that, because matter has no influence upon spirit and spirit has no influence upon matter. The tantric tradition of India and implicitly the one of Tibet says that these two aspects are personified for them under the person of Shiva, the cosmic male, and Shakti, the cosmic female, and they dance with each other. There is a love interaction. They interact. There is a love between spirit and matter, not an enmity or a separation. And you probably ask yourselves, and so what? What's the big deal about this? The big deal about it is that then you can have a totally different attitude to your body, to life, to reality and to what you do physically if you think one way or the other. It is very interesting that quantum mechanics, in this case literally quantum mechanics, has actually demonstrated for the first time in the history of modern science that spirit and matter indeed interact. This came under the, per, under the form of the famous principle of indetermination discovered by Werner Heisenberg 
which simply says you cannot have an event without having a consciousness that observes that event. And by observing the event, you influence it. And that is why as soon as you observe it, you have modified it. And therefore you cannot know exactly where it goes next, precisely because you have observed it. Which simply says there exists always an interaction between the subject, the I, the observer, the witness, and the phenomenon. Actually, it says, if I look at this carpet, I influence this carpet. This carpet changes because I look at it. Only that in normal circumstances, that change is at a microscopic level and it can be neglected. It's like of negligible dimensions. But at a quantum level, that change is overwhelming if you zoom in. And therefore, the principle of indetermination says consciousness and matter interact. The world is not just matter. You cannot conceive of the universe as just matter. If there is not an observer, a witness, a subject, a spirit, then you cannot have it. It will not work. And therefore, this principle of indetermination has brought in the world of science the existence of God. As I said last night, some journalist asked Werner Heisenberg, how is it possible that a scientist on your caliber should believe in God? And Werner Heisenberg said, dear, I don't believe in God because I am a scientist. I know about the existence of God because quantum mechanics demonstrate that there needs to exist an underlying consciousness, a background consciousness for everything which exists in this universe. From an elementary particle till the galaxies, we need to have a background of consciousness and that background of consciousness is exactly what we are talking about. Therefore, indeed according to quantum mechanics, Shiva and Shakti dance. They interact. They are not separate from each other. The spirit influences the matter and implicitly, of course, matter influences the spirit. There is the circle, like in the yin-yang symbol of the Taoist, and that is also a brilliant not confirmation, but if you want coincidence, a brilliant synchronicity in which, which shows in which way modern science, through its own discoveries, quantum mechanics, elementary particles, relativity, and all the things which I have said, plus principle of indetermination and others, is actually the same thing which was announced in metaphysical sciences. I could continue with this, but it's not my point to tire you uh, ex excessively, that I have tried in the first part of this lecture to show that the people who have studied energy as the body, as the mind, as the emotions, as destiny, the spiritual seekers who have looked upon this universe and upon themselves as beings made of energy and they have understood the levels of energy and the spirit and matter in interaction, they have reached somehow, not 100%, but in many respects, they have reached to the same conclusions which come up from modern science. If you are willing to explore more, start reading some of these materials. As I said, the Tao of Physics, the holographic universe of uh, Talbot and uh, space-time and beyond, and much of the literature appeared in modern times, and you are going to see incredible things. It's like, how did those people have the intuition? 2,000 years ago when their culture was supposed to be rather primitive, how did they have the intuition that everything is energy? Not only that, I don't have time to go with you into these things,
but they have demonstrated that that energy has an incremental spectrum of frequencies, that it is possible to work upon the frequencies of that energy, because energy is characterized by vibration, and therefore by a frequency of vibration, and therefore you can produce effects such as resonance. For example, there is a sun out there, and we human beings sometimes suck energy from the sun. Our energy system feeds itself with energy from the sun. But some people suck this much energy every day, and some people suck this much energy every day. And the difference is the phenomenon of resonance. It's like tuning in. If you tune in, you are online, and you get a lot, and if you are out of tune, you don't suck that energy. If you want to get in tune with the earth energy, which I mentioned earlier, and which gives you vitality and robustness, one of the simple methods is that you should be in touch with the earth. For example, go on the beach and cover your body with sand. Dig yourself into earth so that your body should feel the earth. Or even more simple, go in a park, take off your shoes and socks, and walk barefooted and try to feel the earth because you are living at the 21st floor in a high building made of concrete and steel and glass and you are cut off. You wear shoes with plastic soles and rubber soles and you are living far away from the earth and you hardly get in contact with the earth. And some people lose contact with the earth. This phenomenon becomes so dramatic in the case of astronauts who go orbiting around the earth and then their bone substance and the muscle and everything goes away. And people who have been kept in bed without making any muscular effort did not lose their bone tissue and muscular tissue to the same extent. So it's not only the lack of gravity, there is something else. Dhirendra Brahmachari, one of the great yogis of India, when he was called by NASA in USA to explain to try to give a yoga program for the training of the astronauts, he told them from the very beginning, the problem with your astronauts is that they lack the earth energy. They go so far away from the earth and they don't have earth energy. So we have to do something to get them some earth energy. We have to do some yoga for them up there on the orbit to amplify the earth energy. Unfortunately, the scientists who participated in this program, they were so narrow-minded, surprisingly, that they couldn't understand even this simple concept, and they didn't test it, and therefore they were not able to validate if this works or not. In yoga, we know that it works, and any one of you can verify. If you start applying these methods concretely, you will see how they work. Enough of this. This was a warming up for me. I warmed you up and I tried to make it really gentle, not mathematics, not high-level physics and stuff. I just tried to show that there are some bridges between science and the mystical and the energy metaphysics. In, the, in what will follow after the break, I will start with a short exercise of the mind, I will put you in a certain state of mind, and starting from there I will start outlining for you the space and time angle. I haven't touched yet the understanding of the space and time. I went mostly in quantum mechanics, the structure of matter and energy, and the connection with consciousness. Now I'm going to look at the space and time from a physical, geometrical, mathematical standpoint. Relax, it will be very light-handed. And funny enough, I will take you to a level of understanding which is unusual, which usually comes through meditation. And therefore, I'm going to 
explain to you practically how yogis reach to an exquisite understanding of reality, of the spirit and other such things by actually the same, in the same ways in which modern mathematics, geometry, physics study the same elements. After that, if you will still be able to do that, we'll have a bit of questions and answers as far as time permits. So now we are going to take a five, seven minutes, let's say, it's a good number, break for you to relax. And then I'm going to start with the second part, which will go deeper. Okay, so let us now prepare to go deeper. What follows next is going to be a bit surprising to you and unusual. We are going to make like a sort of beautiful experiment, a spiritual experiment in which you are going to see some elements belonging to the state of meditation. Basically, I'm going to take you partly into an altered state of consciousness in which you will be able to see some things, although normally, most probably, most of you don't see those things. And how will I do this? I will do this by creating or by bringing into your system a certain energy. I just told you before that it's all a matter of energy. If you have a certain energy, you understand some things. Your mind works in a certain way. If you don't have a certain energy, that thing is not there. This energy is related in practical yoga with a point of energy which is placed in the area of the forehead in common parlance, it is called the third eye because it is symbolized in Indian mystical art and in Tibetan mystical art by a third eye which is placed like the eye of a cyclops in the middle of the forehead and unlike these two eyes, this one is vertical and single. The third eye in uh, the iconography of India and Tibet is symbol of a very powerful energy center. I'll explain to you immediately where and what. And this energy center is very rare among the average person in the average situations. And the activation of this energy center generates high capabilities of the mind. By putting energy into this center, automatically it's like something starts vibrating, not physically, it's not a physical vibration, it's more like an energy, and this energizing opens the mind's eye. This is a sort of mind's eye. Therefore, we are going to do this because else it would be impossible to truly explain what I want to tell you next. It would remain at the level of pure theory, and we did not meet here just to talk about speculative theories that we could do in a university where we talk uh, at a philosophy uh, course. We could do the philosophy of science and speculate about elements of the kind. It is not my way to do things, uh, and I prefer to do things in a practical way. Therefore, in a certain way, it will be like you will be entranced. It is a little bit like you would be hypnotized. But don't worry, because this is no hypnosis, and you are not going to be hypnotized. I'm not going to do any hypnotic thing. It's just that you will feel at some strange, it's almost like you are dreaming. There will be a thing like, is this real or what? The only thing which I want you to do, or better said, not to do, is to try not to shake yourselves out of this state because 
you will not be hypnotized and it's very easy to break the spell. Therefore, I, it's like an experiment. Try to see it's a little bit like a movie, like I'm making you watch a movie. You can stand up and walk out of the movie or you can switch, off, switch on the light and then the movie is not there anymore. Therefore, what I want you to do is that in the moment when you feel that you start entering into this state, even violent movement, if you agitate yourself like this, they would like break the spell. So try to stay calm. Look, I'm going to make some drawings on the board and explain some things from the standpoint of pure physics. The first parts of this demonstration you can find them in any good book on physics and space-time dimensions, mathematics of multiple dimensions and others, but I will not resort very much to the mathematical things, uh, assuming that you are not very well uh, trained into mathematics. And I'm, therefore I'm not going to use a mathematical apparatus, I'm just going to use elementary geometrical things, graphical things, and um, therefore simply follow and simply try to stay, to enjoy it, to see what is happening into this, trying to see if this leads you to a certain vision, to a certain conclusion. And in this way, in the end of this presentation, I hope to fulfill this process in around 45 minutes, 50 minutes, it will be like a deep meditation. In the end of it, you are going to see and understand some elements which come through deep yogic meditation through the third eye. It is also very possible that tomorrow morning when you will wake up, you will not remember most of what I have said, or you will remember the conclusions, but you will not get the point of how I got there. It's like you'll ask yourself, how did this orange guy do? How did he get to this? It's like it was very clear yesterday evening, but now I don't know why it's not clear anymore. It's not clear because I'm going to cross the path a little bit for you, and you are going to be wagons and not locom locomotives. You are going to be like carried into this. You can do the same thing if you learn about meditation. If you learn how to activate your third eye, and if you learn how to put energy, you will be able to go there. So what we are going to do is this. I'm going to start with five minutes, three minutes, four minutes. I will stop when I'll feel that energy is strong enough, in which we are simply going to put through visualization, through mere desire, we are going to put energy in a certain point of our energy structure. In the moment when we hit a certain threshold of energy there, I will stand up and I will start explaining things according to elementary geometry and mathematics. In the beginning, things will be at the level of elementary school and it will go deeper and deeper. And then at some point, I will cross the limit. You will not know exactly when I'm crossing that limit. And I'm going to go to these deeper dimensions of the human spirit. Therefore, the only thing for you is to, again, stay relaxed. Again, it's not a hypnotical process or anything of the kind because you will be totally aware all the time and simply enjoy this insight, like try to look deeper into the nature of things, to see if these things fit with what your mind, I, see. And then, in the end, we are going to get to some conclusions, and then you are going to see what conclusion did the Tantric Yogis of India and of Tibet, their conclusions are practically identical, the formalism is slightly different, because of the cultural background and the others. Uh, what conclusions did they reach? 
not only concerning the nature of spirit and matter, as I said earlier, but according to the dimensions of this universe, to the nature of this universe in terms of space and time. So what we'll do in the beginning, I'm sorry because we did not manage to put together a music system for this in this place, we'll do it without music, it's completely easy without music, music makes the transmission more powerful. Uh, what we are going to do is that we are going to concentrate our imagination, our visualization, our intention and our attention in a point pertaining to each and everyone's energy system and in that point you are going to imagine that you send energy. Both your own energy and energy from the universe converges until that point becomes radiant with energy, exactly like the sun radiates energy. This point should be placed at two finger breadth outside of your middle forehead. In the middle of the forehead, each and every one of you has a bit of a dent in the frontal bone. That's approximately the point in the middle of the forehead. And from that point, imagine a two finger breadth, four centimeters approximately, outside. There's a point right here. In this point, according to the understanding of yoga and others, there exists a very important node of energy, a very important crossroad of energy, what we in yoga call a chakra, a center of force and energy. And in this point, we accumulate energy, we send all the lower energies, all kinds of energies coming from the universe, until this point becomes radiant. I cannot say that this will become optically something because some people are visual, some people are auditive, some people are kinesthetic and that means your basic input is different. Some people see things, some people feel things. I don't know which one of them you are. Some of you will see and some of you will feel something and some of you will perceive like a vibration, almost like a sound or something. It's good Anyway, we cannot go at this point into the details. Yoga, of course, goes into these kinds of details. And therefore, we focus on this point for three, four, five minutes. All you have to do will be to sit up straight, but not stiff, not in a tense way, to sit up straight, but relax. To close your eyes, it is best. To focus your attention in that point, you may have the reaction that your eyes under your closed eyelids will try to go up and look in that point. It's okay. It creates a bit of an unnatural tension. So if you feel tired, don't do that. But if you feel that you wish to do it, do it. And therefore you focus all your attention here, in, out in the blue, simply, four centimeters outside of your skin, and visualize, imagine, wish that you accumulate energy in that point. After approximately three, four, five minutes, I will tell you to stop this concentration and then I will start explaining things using a formalism, again, from scientific language, geometry, mathematics and others and trying to create the bridge between that and the spiritual vision inside. Now, we'll start therefore with those three, four, five minutes of concentration, meditation, call it whatever you wish, in yoga these have all very technical meaning and afterwards I'm going to travel with you to the world of space and time. Let us now start those several few minutes of concentrating energy in Agnya Chakra in the so-called third eye.
be as relaxed as possible. It's all a matter of mind. And that will do. Now we are starting our presentation of the geometrical realities. The first dimension is explained in mathematics by most elementary geometrical representation in space and time is a dot. A dot, a point, 
is a reality which has no length, no breadth, no height. It is basically zero, zero, zero. It is a zero-dimensional reality. Of course that the dot which I am drawing on the board has a dimension because of the ink and of the instrument. But that's a symbol of an infinitesimal point which is like completely a-dimensional. That is why a mathematical point, which is also called a singularity in mathematics, is an element which does not exist in this world. Even an atom is much bigger than a point, because a point is like even smaller than an atom. It's zero, zero, zero. Therefore, a point is an abstraction. That is why a point is like, while it is a mathematical reality, it is at the same time like something which does not exist in this world and therefore it belongs to the world of pure ideas, to the nose, as the Greek Gnostics were calling it, and therefore it belongs to the world of pure spirit. That is why in India the point which is called Bindu is actually nothing else but a symbol of the spirit, this spirit transcending matter is a point, it's like a singularity and therefore it's like the point is immaterial, it is not of this world, it is transcendent. This point, this material point generates the dimensions, that's what Advaita Vedanta and other mystical doctrines tell us. If this point is taken and it moves along one direction, from the position A to the position B, it generates a line, a thread, a point like a pearl on a string. If it moves on a position, it describes actually a complete line. The line in mathematics, in geometry, a line, a straight segment, is like one dimension. It has no thickness, it has no height, but it has length. It is long but not broad, not tall, not high. This is the unidimensional reality. This is the first dimension, length, one dimension of space. Also, it is worth underlining, and this can seem to you as a mere mathematical exercise, as an intellectual speculation, but there is a point to it, as you will see pretty soon. If we take an imaginary scissor and we cut like we simply section, create a section through this thread, through this line. In the moment when you cut it, if this is the line and I cut it, when I look in the length of it, if I look from here, what do I see? The point. This line is like infinitely thin and thick, and uh, uh, thin and uh, narrow, and therefore when I cut it, when I section, at any point where I cut this line, I discover the same point which generated. It's like a point moving, 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 infinite amount of points, and thus generating the line. This is how I go from no dimension to one dimension. In yogic psychology, it is considered that this unidimensional way of being corresponds to the animal consciousness, to the lowest of the chakras, to the lowest of the forms of energy, out of the seven forms of energy, and therefore 
this form of existence is like a linear form of existence, is the most simple, the one which is run by the forces of nature, instinct, and all the others. Then, if we go deeper, if we go next, one line, such a line, A to B, if it moves perpendicular to its direction, it generates line, 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 so it's like this is the line, and it moves, it generates, if it goes from here to the position, let's call it A prime and B prime, it generates what we would call a surface, a line under translation, under lateral transfer, will generate a sheet, a surface, a rectangle in this case, and this is a B-dimensional reality, it's something which is having length, and breadth, although yet it doesn't have any height. It is infinitely thin, it's just an extremely thin sheet, uh, sheet, but it has basically a surface. This is one dimension generating the two dimensions. If by the same mental exercise we slice this sheet by a plane, if we cross it, at any point where we cross it, if we cut it, we find the line, the line which generated it. If you take a piece of paper and you cut it in the middle and you look in the edge of it, you will just see this edge, the line of it. Therefore, one dimension generates two dimensions, but at every moment if you section it and stop, you turn back to the one dimension. Now the next step is, of course, if you take a plane, if you take this rectangular sheet, which is therefore made b-dimensional, and if you move this one perpendicular to itself, if you transfer it level after level after level, you obtain a volume. So if it goes from one position to the next, you are obtaining a cube or a parallelepipedic volume and thus you have gone from a two-dimensional object to a three-dimensional object to something which is a physical body, a volume. Everything in the world that we live in are three-dimensional bodies. That chair is three-dimensional, my body is three-dimensional, this hall is three-dimensional, everything is characterized by length, breadth, height and therefore defines a volume. The world in which we live is a three-dimensional world. I forgot to say that the bidimensional world in yogic psychology corresponds to the second chakra and it defines a consciousness which is flat, which is like the surface of the water. The water element, the earth element, the water element is the second and it defines a flat land. It is considered that depression and other forms of flatness of the spirit are typically related with the energy of this second chakra and with this level of consciousness. The third chakra and the third level of consciousness is already three-dimensional. That is why we know in yoga, and it's something which is experimentally quite easy to demonstrate when you do yoga, that the third level of consciousness corresponds to this volume thing. People who have a development here, they like shapes, they like architecture, they like space geometry, they like form, they have a very good spatial perception of things, the perception of volumes and directions, 
There are people who identify very well the shapes of the body, people who like to do sculpture, painting, art, and so on, who understand very well the volume uh, element of reality. And together with it, there comes a lot of the visual input, such as colors and others. Anyhow, I'm divagating. These are things just to show you that in yoga, these things are given a very clear application. So, we have gone from a bidimensional body, a sheet, which by translation has become a volume and it has become three-dimensional. Through the same exercise, if at any moment I take and cut through this, slice through it, slice through, slice through a cube of bread, in section, I'm finding exactly the square, the original square that generated it. So, if I slice it, I and look in the section, I am finding the b-dimensional object which generated it. I'm turning back one dimension. Now, the three dimensions of space generate exactly the world. There is nowhere to go further than that. There is not a fourth dimension to go in. That is why the fourth dimension is represented symbolically, because it is not a dimension of space, but the fourth dimension according to any Einsteinian theory on space and time and all the modern physics, claims that the fourth dimension is already one of time. We are talking about time. So here it is. We have a three-dimensional object. Let's presume that object is a cube our cube from the previous example, and this cube goes in a direction, that direction being the direction of time. So we move time-wise. So in time, this cube exists from one moment to another. So this is like zero seconds, and this is like ten seconds. And this cube exists, or displaces exist in time. Therefore, this is a call in elementary physics, this is still at the level of quite regular physics, this is called the space-time continuum, a four-dimension continuum, in which you should imagine, like this cube is like a stroboscopic reality. It's exactly like in those photos where they take a hundred photos per second and they have an athlete throwing a disc and you can see the hand like click, 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 click in a hundred positions, blurred like this. Imagine this cube blurred like this. It's photoed a hundred times and it's like cube into cube into cube into cube into cube from moment zero to moment ten. This strange body is what we would call a four-dimensional cube, a cube which has three dimensions of space, volume, and which also has one dimension of time. It moves in time, it exists in time. Let's suppose that by a magic act, this cube was created, materialized by somebody at this moment, bloop, it exists ten seconds, and then after ten seconds, bloop, it's dematerialized. It doesn't exist anymore. This is the image of the existence of a cube in four dimensions for ten seconds. It's what some scientists call a hypercube. A cube in four dimensions because it's not a cube geometrically anymore. And the interesting thing for you to realize is that this cube is like interpenetrated with itself because it, the same volume occupies more of them 
here is where you can use this image that if you cut a section through this cube, at any point where you cut, you, what you find is the cube at that moment. Remember, when you cut something with four dimensions, you go back one and you find a three-dimensional object. At any point, you find actually the cube in that moment. Right. Until now, we are very much into orthodox science. Still, these are mathematical models describing the dimensions. Let's dwell a little bit on this four-dimensional thing because that's already where a leap in understanding has to occur. Now, a cube is a simple reality. If we would, for example, have a phenomenon that this cube, after five seconds, would move or would be moved a few millimeters to the left or to the right, then the existence of this cube from the first moment to the last moment would be like the same. Here is the initial cube. This is the process by which it transforms, it simply evolves in time. And here, somewhere at five seconds, it is moved a little bit to the left. So it is going a little bit like this. And then, of course, in the end, it is still the same cube, which was just displaced a little bit in this way. So this cube is, if you want, and I'm using a lot this for lack of a better word, is like a sausage. It's like a strange four-dimensional interpenetrated reality which looks a little bit like a sausage. Okay, it's forcing it a little bit uh, because this is no sausage. It's square in structure. If we deal with a sphere, that would generate something more like a sausage. But let's call it a four-dimensional sausage. This is the existence of a cube for 10 seconds. At the same time, the cube moving a little bit. Okay, let's jump to another image. Here is our good old friend Walter, which is my target name for an imaginary person. Any Walters in the hall, please apologize, <coughs> because it's, you are not singled out. So here is Walter. I am a terrible drawer when it comes to this. This is Walter from the moment zero to ten seconds. Walter is beamed by Scotty at the moment zero. He appears, he exists from ten seconds, and after 10 seconds, he is beamed up by Scotty somewhere else. And we catch him right here. So this is Walter between the moment 0 to 10. And of course, with all the intermediary positions existing between 0 to 10. Everywhere in the middle of this where you stop, you find the same Walter. Walter stays without moving for 10 seconds. He is even holding his breath. It's just... And this is a kind of sausage, this Walter for 10 seconds. Now let us suppose that Walter moves. After 5 seconds he just sidesteps like this. Then this sausage will look of course like Walter, and then Walter moves, sidesteps, and here is Walter after uh, 10 seconds, right? So in between them you have all the three-dimensional Walters at each moment in time. It's like a sausage. Now, if I want to zoom a little bit back, let's have a person like in Truman's show, uh, Walter, a subject, which is kept in the same position since birth till death. Not only for 10 seconds, but we extend it for 80 years. This is little Walter being born as a baby and by a strange miracle standing up. 
And then as years pass, little Walter is growing up until at the age of 20-something he reaches his full body height. He's still standing up, poor fellow. And so this is a sausage expanding. He keeps the same body height for a number of years. Then after a certain age, his height starts diminishing, as it usually happens. And at a certain age, let's say at the age of 80, Walter kicks the bucket. So this is the life of Walter from birth till death. Walter, by a strange miracle, because we asked him to, did not move. Because if he would move, he would complicate the image and I wouldn't be able to draw it anymore. So this is a sausage, a four-dimensional sausage, showing the life of, not Brian, but Walter in this case. This is the existence of Walter. Of course, a real person moves, sidesteps, hops up and down, bends over, does whatever. So this sausage is much more complicated, it's convoluted in all kinds of ways because Walter at some point takes an airplane, goes there, comes back and so on. But as a principle, the same idea remains valuable. This is a four-dimensional image of a life. Now, until now, we are creating just a bridge between an understanding and orthodox science, which will, of course, define the evolution in time of systems exactly in the same way, three-dimensional object evolving this way. Now, you need to know, to be able to go to the next level, you need to know the following thing. In mathematics, in differential mathematics, there is to define differences between a level to another, because this, I said, it's like a stroboscopic image. How many Walters are there between one and the other in the 10 seconds there? How densely packed are these sequential images of Walter? How dense? Because it's like a slideshow, it's like a cinema film. Differential mathematics defines a unit of difference which is the smallest conceivable and this is the quantum mechanics which funny enough some scientists apply and some scientists don't. In the tantric tradition of India and Tibet they apply it because they say not only space is quantic but time is quantic. So there exists a minimum unit of time. This minimum unit of time is called kshana and it was defined in some Vedic text as the time for one idea to pop up in the mind, which means faster than anything you know. And uh, this kshana is even defined mathematically as 10 at the minus 45th potency or something like this. It's a unit of time which is so small that it is smaller than the smallest time known in physics today, which is the time of a quantum transition, the time which it takes for an elementary particle to cross from one quantic level to another quantic level of energy, that's the smallest time known in modern physics. A kshana from the Vedic text is much smaller than that, so they are talking about some units of time which are inconceivable and also the Vedic texts talk about units of time which are like 342 trillion years which are called yugas or maha-yugas. And the big question is, what would you use that time for in a, in a century when people didn't even have a wristwatch and when if you wanted to meet with somebody, you told him, come at the well in the valley of there about noon. And about noon meant between 10 and 2 o'clock. 
when if you came first, you might have to wait three hours, and the other person was not late. They came around noon because there were no wristwatches, and around noon was very approximate time. So in a period when people were hardly thinking about timing things, people in the Vedic culture, they were talking about units way, way under a second, and units as big as the universe. That's a mystery of how did people conceive of those, because in daily life they definitely need, didn't need those. And this quantum of time, which is like a stroboscopic, like reality is stroboscopic, click, 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 and there is a difference, a small, the smallest unit. In differential mathematics, starting with Isaac Newton, is called dt, and that comes basically from the Greek delta t. Originally it was delta t, and they put delta because they wanted to say difference, difference of time, difference of space. So they symbolized it by the Greek letter delta or d in differential mathematics. So that's like the smallest quantum of time, and in a similar way there exist smallest quantums of space, dx, dy, dz, in differential mathematics, according to the three coordinates. <coughs> that's as much as we go with the mathematics, don't get alarmed. I just used it because it's, used, it's comfortable for me to explain in this way, else I would have to invent a new terminology. Therefore, we are having this dt. Each image, each sequence, when little Walter is doing something, is like dt, dt, dt. And dt is, is considered in differential mathematics, if you want to know, an infinitesimal interval. It's considered to be an interval so small that basically nothing happens. The difference is like the size of the length of an atom's breadth or something. The difference is infinitesimal and between two subsequent images it's like they are identical. You can't really see the difference between one and the next. So narrow this dt is. Now, the point is that the physicists have asked themselves, wait a second, why would time evolve only like this? Why, why would not time also have a dimension like this, laterally, for example? And then if we go dt, not that way, but dt this way, we are going to obtain a second sausage, another alternative of the life of Walter, which is separated from this one with dt. It's just a lateral version of Walter. It's an alternative sausage, but which is so close to the other one that they interpenetrate each other. It's just a micron slightly aside. And that simply says this is a version. It's another sausage. It's an alternative life of Walter, which is this much different from the other, which means this life of Walter differs a little bit. For example, a difference will be that in this life, Walter is one atom's breadth shorter than the other Walter. But the thing is that if I start moving in this direction with dt, 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 I have others and others, exactly as cigarettes would be stacked in a package of cigarettes, I'm starting having sausages, lateral sausages alternatives to the same thing and the difference goes bigger and bigger which means if I go far enough from the original version somewhere here I'm having an alternative to the life of Walter where Walter is a midget 
Walter is not six foot tall because it's shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. But wait a second, this is just one direction of modifying things. But what about from here, if I make like a wind rosetta, like if I'm going, sorry, it should have been the other color. If I'm going up or in between, or this way, or this way, or this way, that simply means laterally. If this is the original direction, I hope you understand. I mean like this, or 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 the other way, or inside, on any of the directions. It's like a cylinder, which means around this original version, I have other and other versions, which means I can, I'm having a version in which Walter is not shorter, but longer, taller. I'm having a version in which Walter has a bigger nose. I'm having a version in which Walter has a higher IQ. I'm having a version in which Walter trips and falls down. For example, I can have a scene somewhere, a slice of this sausage, in which Walter makes a step forward. But in this step forward, I'm having an alternative where Walter's right leg lifts just a little, little bit less than in the other version. And less, and less, and less, and less, and less, until there comes a version far away where Walter trips, hits the floor and trips. And there, that version is very, very different from what you have seen here, which means given enough patience, exactly as a child grows in an adult, adult person and the adult person grows old and so on, I can have totally different versions of the reality because, I hope you understand, this is not only about Walter. Walter is a symbol of the world, is a symbol of the universe. It's not only Walter, it's everybody else, which means I can have alternatives of the same. It's like the universe is made of sausages and each one of them is another alternative of the universe. Slightly differentiated, but if you go far enough, you'll find one hugely differentiated. Which means like, in this universe, and that's what mysticism has said, in this universe is like we have all the alternatives possible. Which means there is a universe in which you are a hundred kilos heavier than you are now. And there is a universe in which you have an IQ double than what you have now. And there exists a universe in which you are a Buddha, you are an enlightened being. And there is a universe in which you have died already because of some disease in your stomach. And there exists a version of reality in which I don't know what happened. Everything is possible. Any alternative, any imaginable or non-imaginable alternative is possible. There exists a universe in which by a morphine, some of you might have heard the term from computer science, you've seen it in Hollywood movies, that they take the face of a person and suddenly that person turns into a werewolf. And by a computer effect, the nose is growing longer, the ears are pointing up, and in two seconds, the face of Brad Pitt turns into a wolf. That's a computer morphism. It's simply turning a form into another by a continuous transformation. By such a morphism, which is not a computer morphism, I can imagine that there is a reality in which Walter is a wolf. In which Walter is a butterfly in another reality. Given enough time, I can reach any transformation I want. Which means there exists incredible alternatives. And if I'm thinking like this, it means, wait a second, I'm not having just one version of reality. I'm having an infinite 
an infinity of versions of reality which are all like potential realities. I don't seem to be a butterfly, definitely. I believe about myself that I am a human being inhabiting, being born on planet Earth. And therefore the question is, why did I choose this reality? Why this sausage and not some other sausage? The, what makes the difference between them? I would like you to understand very well, this is the very nature of reality. Because if you will analyze some of the things that happen in spirituality and mysticism, you are going to see that some people work with this very texture of reality. Here is a crazy story from the life of the 16th Karmapa of the Tibetans. The 16th Karmapa who died somewhere in 1980s, in the early 1980s in Chicago, was a big guy, a very developed Lama, very spiritual, who ran away from Tibet together with the Dalai Lama in the 1950s, and he was considered by everybody to be a gigantic yogi, a very, very developed yogic person. And this Karmapa, one day in the early years of Tibetan Buddhism in uh, America and in uh, the world, in the Western world, this Karmapa was sitting together with his disciples, with the sympathizers, with the uh, Tibetan, uh, those who wanted to study Tibetan Buddhism, and suddenly in the middle of this gathering where they are talking and so on, this big guy starts laughing madly. And it was like completely out of context. Like, like he was a madman. But they, they knew he was not a madman. He was a very reasonable person and he was not having these kind of weird things. So somebody asked him, Karmapa, why are you laughing? And Karmapa gave them a flabbergasting answer. He said, my consciousness was simultaneously projected in 10,000 alternatives of this reality and in one of those universes, the Karmapa from that universe slid on a banana peel and fell down in a very ridiculous way. And I couldn't stop myself laughing because it was like a sort of Charlie Chaplin movie. It was simply a, a ridiculous scene. So this guy, while he was sitting and talking to the people, was aware of 10,000, that's an arbitrary number of course, alternatives of the same reality. And he could follow all kind of alternative versions of reality in which things were extremely different, in, things, in which things were something else than this reality. This is the vision of the third eye in which time is not just one dimension. We are talking about the fifth dimension. So if this is the fourth dimension, the time goes this way, then there is a fifth dimension. And then there is a sixth dimension. Time also has a volume. It can go in all directions. But the lateral ones are very difficult to understand. We understand that this direction, and even this one, we understand it in one way, because we call this past and we call this future, and we think that time can go only from past to future. But what about the lateral time, other versions in time, parallel universes, parallel reality? That's why the mysticism of Tantra does not claim that there is one universe but myriads of universes. In tantric hymns from Kashmir, they say glory to Shiva, the creator of the universes, who creates instantly, who flashes forth the myriads of universes of this reality. It's like there is not just one universe. There is an infinity of universes, like the sausages, 
which each one of them is a different alternative. It's another possibility. And those universes are virtual, are virtually possible, but mysteriously somehow there exists this mystery that one of them for me is highlighted. Please look at it in this way. Most of you have heard about the miracles of Jesus. And in the miracles of Jesus, maybe you didn't think well, because some of them are completely incomprehensible. Here is one of them. Jesus receives a lame man who is on a stretcher, who has been paralyzed for all his life, and now he is 30, 40, whatever, old. He has been a lifetime paralyzed, whatever. He suffered from nervous disease, poliomyelitis, something. And he argues with people and he eventually decides to heal this man. And he tells to this lame man, stand up, take your bed and go home. And this man stands up and goes home. This miracle is so impossible from so many standpoints. Many, most people imagine that Jesus is giving to this guy some sort of energy. Jesus, the great healer, is a sort of Reiki man who comes to this guy and says, Oh, you are paralyzed, here is some healing from God. And he's like Darth Vader giving those blue sparks from him and makes and the guy is suddenly energized, takes his bed and goes home. This seems to ignore some elementary fact. A man who has been paralyzed for 40 years, even if you make him right, if his nerves start functioning by a miracle, he doesn't have any muscles. He cannot stand up because all his muscular system is atrophied. He doesn't have a sense of balance and all the other things, which means it's not enough just to make his nerves work. You have to give him a new body, like this. You have to recreate that man out of the blue, because else this miracle would not work. You can heal him, but then you have to send him six months in physiotherapy to make him start being able to move. You cannot just tell him, stand up and go home. The fact that that man was in front of witnesses told, stand up and go home, it means something else. This is another sausage. It's another reality. It's like we create another reality in which suddenly that man has muscles, has a sense of balance, he knows how to use them out of the blue. This is not just a healing in which somebody sends some energy and fixes some neural circuit in the brain. It's much more, it's creation of a new reality. That's why we see in advanced spirituality that some of the big spiritualists have gone to the point of simply recreating reality. Like a new reality can be created. You can shift the sausage, so to speak. And this is what reality, this is what spirituality says. You can shift the sausage because in case some of you here are people who are spiritually interested, what is spirituality going like? Spirituality says, one day, if you will behave, if you will do tons of spiritual practice, you will reach enlightenment, like Buddha. You will sit under the Bodhi tree, and on the 23rd of September 2015, you will stand up and scream, Eureka! I found it. I got it. It is there. Therefore, most people imagine, and that's a very romantic imagination, I have to say it from the beginning, that the spiritual adventure of the human being is like you sit, you progress, you blossom, you explode, and suddenly you say, now, I got it. Wait a second. There is a very serious flaw to this image of how spiritual realization occurs. 
Because if spiritual realization occurs at a given moment, it means it doesn't have any power backward. And according to a simple phenomenon in metaphysics, in philosophy if you want, to a sim simple principle, everything which has a beginning must have an end. Because it is limited, it's not infinite. While it is said that the nirvana of Buddha is reaching the infinite. Enlightenment is like hitting the infinite, hitting eternity. How can you hit something eternal if it has a beginning? If it has a beginning, it will have an end. Everything which has a beginning will have an end. That's the law of nature. Therefore, you can reach enlightenment only if it doesn't have a beginning. Which means the enlightenment doesn't start in the moment when you have reached it. That's just the way historians describe it. But it cannot be described in that way. In the moment when a human being reaches enlightenment, it's like I have been enlightened from the beginning of time, from the creation of the universe. That's exactly how great enlightened people have said. It's like, I am like God. I have existed since the beginning of time, and I shall exist till the end of time. I am past, present, and future. I'm not starting on the 23rd of September with my enlightenment, because if my enlightenment would start on the 33rd of, 3rd of September, it would end one day. It would be a finite phenomenon, because it has a limit. And therefore, the one who reaches a state of spiritual emancipation, reaches it both in the past and in the future, conquers time in both ways, which means that is a change of sausage, the person who reaches enlightenment recreates himself or herself. They simply shift to another reality. That's why Deepak Chopra has called the enlightenment, the state of spiritual realization, a quantum leap. It's like a leap to another reality. It's not the same linear reality. I, Walter, just move this way and therefore, and suddenly I'm reaching some exalted state of consciousness. The human existence and evolution has to be understood in space, but also in time. We are playing in space and time. And that is why the whole meditation is this, that first of all, I am what I am from the beginning to the end. As long as you think you are what you are, you cannot change the sausage. The whole spiritual systems of meditation, either you do Sufi dancing or meditation of the Buddhist type or whatever you do, is to convince you to shift the reality. It is exactly like in The Secret, the movie, that whatever you think, that's what you are. If you feel that you are limited, you are limited. If you feel that you are ignorant, you are ignorant. You create the reality. And people say, so what? It means that if I believe that I am Jesus, I am Jesus? In a certain way, yes. But unfortunately, you cannot believe it. And that's why you become just a mental patient, if you say, I am Jesus, without actually being it. Because if you are, then you should walk on water. When Shankaracharya, Adi Shankaracharya, the greatest reformer of Vedanta in India a thousand years ago, used to say often, Aham Brahmasmi, which means I am Brahman, which means I am God, basically, I am the Absolute. And there was a disciple of his who parroted him, who all the time imitated what his teacher did, because the poor soul, he was trying to become like his teacher. So he was trying to imitate his teacher, so the intention was good. But at some point, 
But Shankaracharya wanted to show him that he has to go deeper than just imitating. And this guy did everything like his teacher. When his teacher sat down, he sat down and meditated. When he ate, he also ate. When his teacher said, Ahambrak Masmi, he also said, Ahambrak Masmi. He was like copycatting his teacher completely. And one day, Shankaracharya decided to give him a lesson, to show him his measure. And as they were passing through an Indian village, Shankaracharya stopped in front of the blacksmith workshop. He entered, he took the pot of molten iron, a pot of hot, red hot metal, iron, and he drank a sip of it. And then he gave it to the disciples. No? Like, if you really want to do what I do, why don't you drink some red-hot metal? Let's see you. Because you imitate me. You say stupid things just to be like me. Can you do what I do? This is the point. This is the difference between a half-baked faith and the real thing. The real thing is that you believe you are. When hypnosis was forbidden for non-professionals in USA, it was forbidden because in an American university, some young students in psychology, they got a child that was easily hypnotizable, they hypnotized him for I don't know how many times, they did all the stupid experiments which they do in hypnosis, with eating an onion and believing it's an apple, with putting a coin in the palm and believing it's red hot, and holding a palm stretch like this, and after a few days they got bored, they wanted to do something new, and one of them had a very unfortunate idea. They told to this boy to lie down, and one of them told him, now you are dead. And the young boy died. The conclusion of this being, you are alive because you believe that you are alive. If you wouldn't believe, you wouldn't be. If you would believe that you are dead as a hypnotized person believes, which means unconditionally, 100%, you would be dead. Therefore, our existence is completely a matter of belief. What we are, what we believe that we ought to be. But spirituality says you can believe something else, and in the beginning it will be very far from becoming a reality, but if you keep hammering on it for long time enough, you can shift sausage, you can become something else. The reality will change. This reality changes every time when somebody shifts the reality. Some people can believe that that's an impossible system because everybody shifting the sausage will create a different reality every time and it will be like a mess in this universe. Only on this planet we have six billion incarnated souls and potentially each and every one of them is divine and potentially each and every one can recreate reality. And yet this reality has some mysterious laws which make it coherent. That is why... The Tibetan yogis had incredible claims. Kshoma de Kuroshi, a great Tibetanologist from Europe, the first Tibetanologist, when he first of all read the Kanjur, which has never been translated in any European or other language than Tibetan until today, in spite of the hobbies of so many Westerners with Tibetan Buddhism and Dalai Lama and stuff, the Kanjur, as I say, never been translated. And here is the title of a chapter from Kanjur, as it was made under a synopsis a roster drawn by uh, Shoma de Kuroshi in the 1920s or 30s. One of those chapters were called, was called, this is a book which exists, but it exists only in Tibetan, and it, it is worth 225 volumes, big size volumes, Tibetan style volumes. So in one of those volumes, a chapter from that difficult text 
is called like this, Advice for Small Gods, How to Create a Universe. Shoma de Kuroshi realized either the man who wrote this was nuts, or nobody will ever be able to understand this kind of thing. How can you create a universe? A universe, for God's sake, a universe with atoms and stardust and stars and supernovas and galaxies, a universe in which there live beings and people who have hopes and lives and like, like we are. For God's sake, then, who created this universe in which we are? This is also then created. And if I can create a universe, then the question is who created this one? Is what is reality then? Because then it appears like reality is a virtual thing if you can create it with a mind. If your third eye, this is the tantric meditation upon the dimensions. There are three dimensions of space and then together with the fourth one, there starts time. In the heart chakra we have the cycles of the twelve signs of the zodiac, the biorhythms and all the things. It's linear time, one time. And then from the fifth chakra we already have bidimensional time, which means time can be surpassed. The past and the future start overriding each other. That's why in yoga we say that if you reach the fifth level of consciousness, you already start seeing in time. We consider that the fifth chakra brings the forms of premonition. We consider that a man like Nostradamus, who definitely saw things of the future, must have had some arousing of his fifth chakra. And the sixth chakra completes the whole thing because it's the sixth dimension. So there are three dimensions of space plus three dimensions of time which make the six dimensions of the universe on top of which there is of course consciousness, the level above it. It is funny that the same conclusion, one theory of parallel universes, not in quantum mechanics but in modern physics, claims that the only way to have a coherent universe is to have six dimensions, six dimensions of the universe. Another theory claims that there should be ten dimensions, which another system, another tantric system from India also claims in the same way. There are also systems in science, theories in science, which simply see the universe as a multi-dimensional, infinitely dimensional reality. Therefore, this reality of the parallel planes, of the parallel dimensions, is a result of meditation, of the geometric meditation, in which these people basically demonstrated that with the level of the third eye, from this level, you can see the vast ensemble of the universe. It is what the philosophers in the Middle Ages called the music of spheres, that the universe is like an ensemble of spheres, which are like cogged wheels. It's like a clockwork, and the sphere of the sun, and the sphere of the moon, and the sphere of Venus, and all the planetary spheres, not to mention all the other realities, gear with each other, like in an amazing clockwork, and everything is synchronized. I, as a human being, am the right person, at the right place, at the right time. I always fit. I am exactly what I am meant to be. Things are exactly the way they are meant to be, because mind creates reality. The way you think you are, that is exactly the way you are going to be. And that is why the tantric meditation tells us on one hand about how to change reality. I can change my body, I can change my mind, I can change the circumstances of my life if I think creatively, if I think myself in the right way. And at the same time it provides the link with spirit. 
Here is the link with spirit. If I, if Walter in a morphic transformation is in some universe shorter or longer, smarter or more stupid, a dog or a sheep or something else, a table, a chair, there can be anything, even inanimated things, it makes no difference, then automatically I can conceive the following process. Because I can easily say, yes, in this universe I am Walter, and in that universe I am a dog, or whatever. Yes, right, that's like science fiction. There are infinite parallel realities and alternatives to this reality. There are potential realities in which everybody could be everything. But here I am this. But wait a second. If I, from this reality, I am shorter or longer, taller, or a dog or something in that reality. And then, so I'm following a line of transformation which from here to there generates that version of reality. And then from that reality, I start on another creod, they are called creods, like the geodes in geodetics. Geodetics, geodes are lines on the earth, and creods from chronos are lines in time. So it's like on another timeline, I can find another morphic transformation where I am in this universe and I am her or him. So from here to there and from there back to here. And then I understand what Shankaracharya said. I am you. You are I. I am that. You are that. And therefore I and you are one and the same cosmic consciousness. Because this is what is in the end of this process. Either you go in space or in time, in the end of all this development, we have this universal consciousness. Like there is a universal actor that plays all the roles. You and I look different, don't we? I am dressed in origin, I sit on this chair, and you sit there. But even space is an illusion. We, you feel you are different from me simply because we occupy different coordinates in space. If there wouldn't be different coordinates, we'll be all in the same volume. And then who is me and who is you? If we eliminate the simple illusion of space just to start with. And basically what I'm trying to say here is that I seem to be different from any one of you. But so do two waves on the ocean. A wave here and a wave here. If you look from a helicopter, this is one wave and that's another wave. And actually it's the same ocean. We all know that it's the same ocean. If I look on a tree, this flower is different from this flower. But if I zoom back, it's the same tree. They are just two different flowers on two different branches. What pushes the energy? Where does the sap come to create this flower and this flower? It's the same root. It's the same tree. Therefore, I am a flower and you are a flower. And we are two flowers sitting on two branches of the same tree. And I'm looking at you and I'm talking to you. And I'm, I am the tree talking to the tree. I am the same talking to the same. In Indian mysticism they say there is just one actor. Shiva Nataraja, the king of all actors. Which means is the universal consciousness playing all the roles. All of us are like Muppets. One is Kermit and one is Miss Piggy. But it's the same puppeteer that moves them both. They look like two different things. <clears throat> Therefore the question is, if space and time demonstrate that I am you 
because you know that this has been said, but most people take it as a kind of a romantic statement. Jesus says it organically. Jesus says, I was ill and you have helped me. I was a prisoner and you visited me. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. And he says, you are going to say, when, Lord, did we do all these things to you? And he says, truly, I tell you, those of you who do it to the least of my brethren, they do it to me. Jesus says, I am all man. I am all human beings. From the most wretched till the most exalted, I am one and all. And he means it organically. He says, I am all. And the same thing has been said in Vedanta and in Sufism and in so many other traditions. And therefore the question is, we have been told, but it's very difficult to accept because you look at each other and you say, we cannot be the same. Swami Vivekananda of India demonstrates, he says, how difficult it is to live this in practice. In his book on Jnana Yoga, he gives the following example in which a great Swami from India was at some point stabbed by a guy from a neighboring village who was also a Muslim. There were some religious riots in the 19th century India. And the villagers caught the culprit and they brought it to the dying Swami who was stabbed lethally and who was dying slowly. They brought him to him and they said, we caught the man who stabbed you. Pass judgment on him. What shall we do with him? And the old man dying, he looks at the man who stabbed it and he says, my brother, you are that, I am that. What else is there to say? Which basically he says, you are God, I am God. God has stabbed God. One form of God has stabbed another form of God. A wave has clashed into another wave. What difference does it make? It makes no difference whatsoever. This is an illusion that we cling to these small things and that we think my personality versus your personality, my flower versus your flower, my wave versus your wave. This is the very deep nature of love because we are all one. I cannot love you if you would be different from me. I can love you precisely because you are me. This is recognition. You are I and I are you and that's why when I love you, I love myself. That's what Rumi says. I love you, I love myself. I love myself, I love you. This is the true essence of love. That is why Augustine, one of the great theologians of early Christianity, says you have to love yourself. And he demonstrates freely that people don't love themselves. He says if you would love yourself indeed, because people say, oh, loving yourself is like egoism. And he says, I beg to differ. The egoistic people don't love themselves. They hate themselves. They are self-destructive. He says, if you would love yourselves, what would you do? If you truly, truly would love yourself, you would try to give yourself the most precious gift that there exists in this universe. And what is the most precious gift that there exists? Immortality. Eternity. If you truly love yourself, then you don't want to disappear. Then you want to last forever and ever. If you love yourself, you would want to make yourself eternal. Therefore, if you would love yourself, you would be the most spiritual practitioner. You would be an intense spiritual practitioner if you would love yourself. The truth is that people don't love themselves. People act self-destructively. The egoism wants to make you forget, disappear. That is why actually love is love of oneself ultimately. 
The biggest problem is that we don't love ourselves, we don't cherish ourselves, we don't understand who we are, what we are. That's why Shivananda says, eating, sleeping, procreating. A little laughter and a lot of tears. Is this all there is to life? And then he hits hard and he says, don't die like a worm on the surface of this planet. Wake up and realize you can be more. This is not what life is. The understanding of what we truly are, this is the true message. And this is a form in which tantrics have understood. I am you, I am that. Space and time are just a web which creates an illusion. And of course it's useful for the needs of daily life. But when I go deeper, I can understand in a very rational way that following the timelines of alternative realities, I can actually identify with everything in this reality, with everything in this universe. And therefore, this conclusion, this meditation, has taken the great yogis to the conclusion of a universal consciousness, of a universal reality that is beyond the six dimensions of the space and time. The seventh level of existence, which is beyond the space and time, and which represents the consciousness, the universal consciousness. This is the way in which in Tantric Yoga they have related energy, space and time, and in understanding the structure of reality, and as you can see it relates for them with everything, with meditation, with spirituality, with the perception of reality, with love, and with all the basic things of this life. Therefore, I have shared with you tonight a little insight in the way in which, because some forms of yoga, some forms of spirituality did not care about space, time, energy and these. These were especially the ascetic forms which were jumping directly to the analysis of the ultimate consciousness. But the tantric forms of yoga are interested in analyzing the here and now, in analyzing matter and energy, in understanding the body, in understanding the movements of the stars, in understanding the nature and the reality in which we live, in understanding this web, this warp, because that's what tantra means, warp, in understanding this web of space and time. And following a completely different path, they have reached to the same conclusion that finally, in the end, everything is one. The top of reality, the top of the universal pyramid is one and therefore everything amounts into this one consciousness. We are all, although it is so difficult to accept it and to understand it, we are all waves on the same ocean. We are all flowers on the same tree. There is one and the same force which pushes, which is like wind in the sails of a boat, and which pushes us forward to blossom, to grow, to evolve. And I don't know if you see, this is a force, this consciousness which is pushing, is a force which pushes inanimate matter to become conscious. Because what is this? This is clay. This is dust. From dust till dust. This is inanimate matter that I eat and collect from the universe. And this matter, which are just atoms and molecules, stands up six feet high in front of you and says, I am, and talks to you, and says, we are one and the same. How is it possible that matter should build up a pair of eyes, look alive, and suddenly tell you, I am? Who are you? Who am I? I am that. You are that. This is the miracle, because spirit 
enlivens the matter. The matter gets enlivened and it gets enlivened more and more. More and more life, more and more consciousness, more and more awakening. More and more of us will become Buddhas and Bodhisattvas given the right timing. And therefore, the universe is becoming more conscious. The Tantrics have conceived that even the stellar dust can become conscious. Because it is consciousness. Matter and consciousness are one and the same. Only under different forms. And that is why this universe is alive. There is not nothing which is inanimate. The Theosophists a hundred years ago, they even wrote a book which is called The Consciousness of the Atom. Because according to the Oriental mysticism, even an atom has its own personality. Even the atom has a sort of very primitive consciousness. And that is why in this universe everything is alive. We are living in an interactive universe. And the whole point is to understand that you can change the reality from a certain level. Especially from the level of the sixth chakra, when you come up to the top of the six dimensions, three of time and three of space, it becomes possible after a, an appropriate effort to change things of reality. And I hope that at this point you can see something from this insight tonight, from this brilliant result in meditation which have been obtained by the great tantrics of yours and which are nothing but the truth of existence, which are nothing but a description of reality from a more spiritual standpoint. I have finished, I could say many other things, I have prepared here some other things about the subtle universes, the so-called subtle dimensions, space and time, how the mind has access to them, how mathematics is equivalent with some of those things. It's good enough for tonight. I feel that the effect has been reached already. And in this way, I hope this will be enough for you to stimulate your own research in understanding the nature of reality, in understanding the nature of matter, energy and spirit, in understanding the nature of space and time, and ultimately through this, answering the fundamental question, who am I and why am I here? Because this is truly the fundamental issue in our existence. With this we will stop. If at this point you still can handle that, I will take your questions. If you wish any clarification at this point, while we are in this clear state of mind, after which we'll stop for tonight. There will be more lectures, but I'm afraid not in Toronto, so in other places, some of them nearby and some of them not so near. You can hear all the administrative details from Darren and Wendy and the other organizers of this. Please. Yeah, if, uh, if First of all, there are two approaches to this. There is the unifying approach and there is the separating approach. The separating approach is the one which is dominated by our ego and in that one I say, I have my territory, you have your territory, stand aside. This is an ego-dominated thing, which means don't, don't tread over my territory, don't trespass. But this kind of attitude is good temporarily, which means it makes me feel good as a personality. Ah, I cleared out all the negative influence from this person, but it is not a solution forever. 
It's a solution which satisfies me for a while because it seems to solve the daily life problems. The unitive solution, in Sanskrit the name yoga means yoking together, it means union. The unitive solution is what would be if I would understand that you and me are on the same page, even when you don't seem to be so, even when the differences are gigantic. Because you, with some poor child from Somalia who is dying of hunger tomorrow, don't seem to have anything in common. You are different in space, different in social condition, different in education and all respect, and you wouldn't like to feel one with that one. And yet, Jesus comes to the point where he is one with all, with everyone and all. That is another way of solving the thing, and that solving of the thing is by lifting, by elevating the level of vibration. The second solution, which is the more spiritual yogic solution, is to elevate your energy at least to the heart and more until that trespassing becomes something else. It is not a painful problem anymore. I can solve it exactly like, for example, you are talking to me in Chinese and I don't understand Chinese. Then what does it matter? You are telling to me something which I don't understand anyhow. And therefore it's like we are completely on a different wavelength. Therefore, there is paradoxically a way in which by elevating your frequency you can be together, like you can have this feeling of oneness and you don't need to reject because this is our capitalist society, this consumer society makes us all very egoistic. My things, my money, my house, my property, my rights, yours, it's kind, I am very different from you. And this is exactly the death of the heart. And all the great mystics from Ramakrishna to Rumi and from Jesus to, till you name it, they have taught us about the union of the heart, that if we open the heart, we can live in another way. And that is based in yoga on the law of frequency. If you change the frequency of vibration, the interaction changes completely. I guess I should clarify, I'm mostly thinking of that term that some people hear, energy vampire, so it's like, it's not like something you want to be intimate with or something like that. Correct. That is correct. But here is the solution. Do you think that the sun is afraid of energy vampires? You can suck energy from the sun until you turn blue and still you will not finish even a droplet from the energy which the sun has. So the solution of the sun is not to stay away from energy vampires. We are all energy vampires to the sun. And the sun accepts us like some little cockroaches down there and gives us energy all the time. So when you have an energy vampire, you should develop so much and shine like the sun. And then you can have a thousand vampires around you and you'll still shine like the sun and they will never drain you dry. All the great masters of this planet, the men and the women who reach this love, they are never afraid of being sucked of any energy. You want energy? Here is energy, as much as you want. Like the more you ask, the more there is and there is no limit to it because Ultimately, that's the illusion. Everybody thinks the energy comes from me. But the energy never comes from me. I am just a wave on the surface of the ocean. It's the ocean which creates the wave. The energy never comes from me. The energy comes from the universe. I am like a window through which the energy shines. I am like a channel through which the energy streams. Therefore, I am never afraid that the energy will be over. 
Only when I close myself in my tower, when I build walls around myself, when I separate from nature, that's when I don't have energy. And then I say, you took all my energy today, I'm drained. It means I'm, I've closed myself. I open and more energy will come. There is energy for everybody. So there is a constructive solution in which you should be godly. It's a challenge. If too many people suck energy from you, become divine and then there will be enough energy for everybody. So you don't have to hit them back. You have to blossom. Uh, I, I'd like to know if you could expand some comment that you made at the end of the first part when uh, apparently your fascinating uh, universe of energy requires a supernatural God regarding the principle of uncertainty when you were commenting about that is that what exactly means? It's not a supernatural God. It's simply defining that reality is like a coin with two facets. And we usually see just the heads, but we don't see the tails of it. Because we cannot accept a reality in which everything is just a manifested energy. There needs to be a witnessing consciousness, which is not the energy, which is like handling the energy. Without that, the universe would be incomplete. The universe of the pure spiritualist who believe this universe does not exist, it's a dream, it's a maya, there exists just a pure spirit and that's the only reality, is as incomplete as the universe of the pure materialists who say there is just matter and energy and there is no spiritual transcendent reality. Tantra says if you don't have both, you cannot have the two sides of the coin. It's necessary to have them both. And apparently, that's what scientists have concluded. Some scientists have also concluded. But there is no supernatural. It's not supernatural because it's like the two sides of the coin. They cannot be separated. A god without nature, without the universe, cannot be conceived of. A separate reality would be absurd. So we can never conceive of abstractly of a supernatural being which is separate from this universe. This universe in itself is the divine. Uh, I think for St. Francis who said that it is by dying that she awakens the living life. Yes. Uh, this idea of death would also be therefore an illusion that, that there is this eternal life. Uh, how do you define this eternal life after this plane of existence? And you've talked of many dimensions. Correct. So there is a dimension to come in that world. Uh, how do you define it? This is where the law of karma interferes. This is where cause and effect. Death is ultimately just an effect. And that effect depends on the way the causes have been. That is why it is not enough to speak about death generally, but we have to speak about what kind of death and in which circumstances. Because there is a death which goes downhill and there is a death which goes uphill. Since ever in spirituality there has been defined that some forms of death take us lower 
and some forms of death exalt our spiritual stature. For example, the understanding of Gurdjieff, which is coming very much from the Sufi environment and others, is that there exists a hierarchical organization of the universe, which starts with the universe, the galaxies as kernels, of, of, as, as centers, then the solar systems with each sun as a center of a reality, then planets which are surrounded by satellites, like the Earth is with the moon orb, and therefore you have universe, galaxy, solar system, planet, satellites of that planet. And in this mysticism, for example, they consider the satellite lower and the center higher. And in the Indian mysticism, in Vedas, they have exactly the same thing, the lunar path and the solar path. If you die in a non-spiritual, ignorant way and your karma draws you back, you go on the path of the moon, which is obscure, and you go in the outer darkness. And if you evolve spiritually, you follow the solar path, which means you move from earth to sun, and it's like you move to the next level of existence. Your existence is elevated to the next level, exactly as somebody who works in the branch of a company, and then he is called to the general headquarters of that company to have a responsibility function there, so he became, he was promoted into the headquarters. Into, it's exactly the same kind of idea, that there are levels of existence, and through that we can choose a path which is downhill or uphill. And the whole, one of the great purposes of spirituality is to make people practice, purify themselves, understand, increase their level of love and compassion, and their level of understanding, of course, so that the death can be an ascending path. That together with death, you can be promoted, you can evolve. This is the general Eastern idea, that if you do not manage to promote, then you are simply recurring in a cycle. And this is their idea of reincarnation, that you keep spinning in a circle until one day you manage to escape to a higher level of existence. So basically spirituality says death is, it is a great opportunity. It is a transformation. It is a door which is open. Only that it's a Y-shaped corridor. If you take the wrong branch, you go in the wrong place. If you take the right one, you manage to transform your existence to the next level. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.